morning. Uh, it's nice to be back uh, with you again um, after a few. Sorry, I, my apologies to the uh, music people who have to come back and readjust. Let's bow in prayer first as we uh, prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your word as we've sung about it, as we have um, celebrated the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. And now as we open your word and read and focus our thoughts on your word to us, uh, speak to us. Through the powerful presence of your Spirit, open our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you. It's good to be back again with you. Um, And especially on this Sunday, uh, I I don't think it's been mentioned yet, but this is actually Pentecost Sunday. Um, And this is the day that we celebrate the giving of the Spirit to the church, the, the spreading to, to, to God's people of the Spirit. Uh, and it, it may seem surprising that on a day like Pentecost Sunday, I would choose a text like Exodus 19, preparing to receive God's law. Why in the world pick a text like this? Well, I hope it becomes clear as we're uh, going through this text, but... Um, just keep that in mind. We're, we're, this is Pentecost Sunday. It's what we're celebrating today. Um, I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to keep them open because we're going to be looking at the text and we're going to be looking at uh, some other verses as well. Um, a, few years, a number of years ago now, I think it was in the 90s, a, a movie came out. It was a movie by the name, uh, based on a book by John Irving, entitled... Uh, the Cider House Rules. I don't know if any of you saw that uh, movie. It was a, one of the early Tobey Maguire uh, movies. But in the Cider House, Cider like an apple cider, that. Um, in the Cider House Rules, um, there is this orphan. It, it's mainly based in an orphanage, and it's, uh, or about half of the movie actually. It, it's in this orphanage, and there's this orphan by the name of Homer Wells. And Homer Wells is sort of the perfect orphan. He's, he's, he comes as a very young baby, and he never actually gets fully adopted out. He, he's raised, educated, and trained in the orphanage. Well, when he's a young man, he decides he needs to get to see a bit of the world. He's never really hardly been out of the orphanage, never been out of the town where the orphanage is. And so he heads out with a young couple, and he ends up going to... Uh, a farm to work on, an, on a primarily an orchard place, an, an, an apple farm. And on the apple farm, there are these sort of migrant workers, people who come and go, seasonal workers who come, and they come also and stay. And he works with them, um, and they pick the apples, and they live together in sort of this old shabby dorm, dormitory type setup. And it's called the Cider House. On one of the walls in the Cider House is a list of, uh, of, it's a paper with just some rules written down. Unfortunately, none of the workers who come there can read. They're all illiterate. They're uneducated. 
So even though there's these rules up there, they can't read them and they have no idea what it says. Homer Wells comes into the picture and he is educated. And at one point, they say, Homer, read the rules for us. And so he begins to read the rules. And, and they're, they're not that many and they're, they're short. And some of them are sort of, okay, you can understand, you know, don't get drunk. And, and, uh, but then some of them are crazy. Don't eat your lunch on the roof. And, they're, and as they're listening to these rules, they get more and more agitated. And, and finally, he finishes. There's, and again, it's not a long list. And he finishes the list of rules. And one of the, the, the sort of the leader of, of this group of, of workers says, those rules don't apply to us. Whoever wrote those rules didn't live in this cider house. Those aren't our rules tear them off, and burn them. And so he does. Now, Irving in his novel uses this primarily as, as a way to promote a sort of what, what, sort of what we, it's commonly referred to as, as ethics, but it, it's ethics in the situation. Situation ethics. You, you choose your ethics and your rules from within your situation, and you don't have a set of external rules that really don't apply to your setting. Okay? Now, he uses it, I think, unfortunately, to uh, promote uh, abortion as, as appropriate in a certain setting. But the point is, this is the view that many people have of rules, particularly ancient, an ancient code of rules, like the Decalogue, like the Ten Commandments, like the Law of the Lord. Are you kidding me? A 3,000-year-old set of rules, 3,000-plus-year-old set of rules that were handed down in ancient Israel, and somehow you're going to say, those apply to us today? Get real. Or any other rule. If it doesn't seem to apply to our situation well, then we get rid of it. We make the rules in our situation. Well, if that's the attitude to law, to the rules, what application, what, what does this text have to do with us today? So we want to look at that today a little bit, and we want to look at this idea because, what, what, uh, first, I want to point out three things about the giving of law. And I'm going to refer to it usually, generally, by the Hebrew name for law, and I'll explain why later in a little bit, which is Torah. Torah. Now, Torah refers to the first five books, primarily, of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We, it typically refer to it as law, but it's better to use the term Torah. Is it just an ancient code from 3,000 years ago somehow applied to us that doesn't really have any connection? And what we need to see is that Torah is much, much more than that. It's interesting that Torah begins, you think of Genesis, and it is throughout interspersed with stories, with narrative. Have you ever noticed that? 
when you think of laws, a law, what do you think of? You think of sort of, you know, the, the Constitution laws and, and all these things, and it's just very boring, right? You read through it, unless you're a lawyer and you like these kinds of things. It's pretty boring reading. And to try to read through a list of laws is really hard work. Well, Torah, unusually, in fact, I'm told it is absolutely unique in ancient Near Eastern law codes because Torah is interspersed with stories, with narrative. Totally unique. Every other code. Why does Torah have all these stories in it? Why, and the other question is, why, if you're going to have a list of commandments, of rules, why do you wait through all of Genesis and the first half of Exodus to finally get to the rules? Why is Torah only introduced, I mean, the, the rules part of it, the commandment part of it, why does it only come at Exodus chapter 20? One of the rabbis used to ask this question, the ancient rabbis. And one of the rabbis, one by the name of Ishmael, writing probably in the second century A.D., asked that same question in one of his writings. He wrote this, and I'm quoting, Why didn't the Torah begin with the Decalogue, with the Ten Commandments? Why didn't it begin there? A parable will explain it. A man entered a country and said, Make me your king. The people replied, what have you ever done for us that we should make you our king? So, he built them walls, made them waterworks, fought wars on their behalf. Then he said to them, make me your king. And they said, yes, indeed. Thus, God liberated Israel from Egypt, divided the sea for them, gave them manna from heaven, provided them with a water supply, provisioned them with quail, fought Amalek on their behalf, and then said to them, Make me your king. Whereupon they replied, Yes, indeed. You see, we have to remember that the law part of it, the commandment part of Torah, comes after a long story about the founding, well, the creation and the founding of the, the, the nation of Israel and then through the deliverance, the deliverance from Egypt and, and God's sustaining providence all through the desert until they come to Mount Sinai and, and you come to this, this climax of when God now says, okay, this is what I've done for you. Now here are the conditions of our covenant. And it's important to see Torah as a covenant relationship. Not as just a, 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 an out there set of laws in, you know, put on people, but it is covenant and it is relationship. In fact, that's why we, it's better to use the term Torah. Torah comes from the Hebrew word yara, which just means to teach. Torah means teaching, instruction. It doesn't literally mean law. The teaching of God. The instruction of God. And again, remember that Torah comes to God's people because of a special relationship that God has with His people. 
Notice, uh, particularly, I want to focus on the words, uh, the, the verses 4 to 6. I don't know if you can call those back up on the uh, slide. It might be helpful for those people who don't have necessarily their Bible with them. Notice in verses 4 to 6, um, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice what he says. He says, you shall be to Me a treasured possession. It's a special term, again, in Hebrew, that, that it, it, it means, it's used uh, four times, eight times in the Old Testament, four times just in the Torah, mainly three, three other times in the book of Deuteronomy. And this concept, this idea of God loving His people so much that He calls them, wow, you are my special people. You are my treasured possession. God's loving care. Um, we, we see it again in the New Testament. The New Testament makes reference to this. Again, think about this. How this applies to us as a church. Titus 2, verse 14. Talking about Jesus Christ. Titus, uh, Paul writes to Titus, Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. A people for His own possession. The Greek word used there is the same term that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in this text. A special possession. A treasured possession of God. And notice too how he says in verse 4, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you. I bore you. Now, not boredom. I bore you. I'm, I'm reading from the ESV here, okay? The English Standard Version. So I know it's a little bit different from what you have. I bore you. I carried you. I carried you along. Uh, Victor Hamilton, in his fine commentary uh, on this text, he, he comments on how God, either God carries the people or the people carry their God. I want to show you a little picture here. If you can put that up. Uh, when we lived in Lawas, um, in, in uh, Sarawak, so it's a little bit, the, this, it's a, the, the dimensions are a little distorted here. But when we lived in, in Sarawak, in, in Malaysia, uh, one of the things that happened every year, it happened once a year, and some of you may be familiar with it, it's more of a, this is more of a Taoist uh, tradition, uh, but they would take out, they had these gods, these, these idols, in the temple, and once a year, they would take the idols out and they would carry them. They would actually put, this is actually, I got this off the internet, I didn't have a picture of it, but they would take them on their shoulders and they would walk through the streets and they'd go to the cemetery and then they'd come back with the gods. And they had several of them and, and people would go kind of berserk as they were carrying them and the gods would fight. for. Go they didn't want to go back into the temple, they liked being out or something like that. But the people carried the gods. We watched it several times. Either 
people carry their gods, little g, or God carries his people. Our God, you can get rid of that. that we, don't, we don't want to follow that. Our God carries his people. He bore them. And do you hear this, this idea of a special relationship that, that Yahweh, the Lord God the, of the Old Testament here, Yahweh using his old name, his Old Testament name, that he has with his people with like no other nation, he says. No one else in the world, even though all the earth is mine, no one else in the world has this kind of a relationship. And what you need to hear in this text is not some... Uh, rigid code hammered on people. Rather, you need to hear the language of covenant, primarily marriage. This is like a marriage contract. Now, we don't make marriage contracts and we don't even like the idea, but it's essentially, it's, it's a marriage relationship. And that's why the old, and throughout scriptures, the picture is often of God's people in, in a sort of, to use an analogy, a marriage with God. God with His people. And of course, the New Testament, you can hear all of these images, right? You're probably, I hope, hearing that when Jesus, we talk about Jesus being the bride, the church being the bride of Christ. And we're going to a wedding feast because we're in a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship. Okay, so first thing is Torah is a covenant relationship. It's not just some external rules laid on us. It is God's loving care because of what He's done, bringing us, calling us into a relationship. But secondly, Torah is a call to holiness because we are invited in, and and the people are invited in. They're given a choice, and they respond, "Yes, we will follow. We will be in relationship in this kind of marriage." type relationship with Yahweh. But because of that privileged relationship with Yahweh, there are certain responsibilities laid on both parties. And here it's clarifying the responsibilities laid on the people of God. Now, we're not going to get into the Ten Commandments and any of that today, but what he lays out, you see that clearly here, at least in two ways. First, they have to prepare themselves to meet God, don't they? And did you read that? Uh, it, particularly in verses 10 uh, through 15, you notice how they have to do all this ceremony in order to meet God. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them. Set them apart. Make them holy today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for all the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain (coughs) or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Do not have sexual relations. Do not have intimate relations. 
But there's this elaborate, it takes three days. They don't just jump in. For three days they have to prepare, interesting, three days. They prepare to meet Yahweh and to hear His words for them. I was thinking about this in terms of uh, how much time did you take preparing to come to church this morning? How much time do we, do we if you think about it, how much time do we take, how, thought time uh, and physical time, to prepare to come and meet Yahweh? When I was a little boy, Saturday night was bath night. Of course, the little boys hated bath night. But it was bath night. You had to have bath because you had to be ready, prepared to go to church. And a lot of people actually, back in, in the day, would, uh, they would prepare things ahead of time the day before so that on the, we called it the Sabbath even, the Sunday, we didn't have to do a lot of work. We were prepared for it. And it could be a day of rest. Now, I'm not saying we have to go back to all of the rules that we had back then. But just think about it. How much time do we take to prepare to come into God's presence? To meet Him. They prepared. Preparing like preparing for, for the wedding. Furthermore, holiness is the key to our witness in the world. Notice what he calls them in verse 6. Well, he says, I've chosen, you're my treasured possession, verse 5, among all peoples for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I've set you apart, and you're to be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, what is a priest? A priest is someone who stands between God or the gods and the people. Here he he describes the whole nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, the whole earth is mine. You're special. You're the kingdom of priests. You're the mediators between Yahweh, the Almighty, and the rest of the people. We hear the same language again in the New Testament. Peter, writing to the churches in Asia, says, and and you'll hear a lot of the same, that he's obviously referring to this text and some of the texts in Deuteronomy. In uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, listen to his words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Again, that same idea of the special possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. A big part of the holiness call is so that we can be, God's people can be, have a priestly role before the world. Bearing witness through holiness. Because, as Yahweh says, all the earth is mine. And you remember here, I hope uh, some of these texts, like say from Genesis 12, again that foundational text for missions, but where God says, I'll bless them that bless you. You shall be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You, my people, 
He says to Abraham and to his children. And so Torah is a call to holiness. But finally, Torah is gracious gift. Torah, God's gift of Torah. Again, I know we don't usually think of the law this way, the the Ten Commandments. But Torah is God's gracious gift. Notice again how the giving of the law comes at this point. It's, it, this is the climax of God's, of the Torah. This is, this is the real climax of it. When God meets His people on the mountain and gives them law. Everything builds up to this and then it, it continues on. But this is the pinnacle when they meet Yahweh at Mount Sinai. It's God's gracious deliverance and provision that brought them to this point. And then comes this this pinnacle. And notice even how Yahweh, He says, set limits around the mountain. And that sounds really restrictive to us, doesn't it? Oh, wow, who is this? You know, we can't get that close. But it's grace. God does this for their own good. Because if they didn't have limits, He says, you know, He knows His holiness. And he has to set limits for the people as well. For their own good, God sets limits. And so this is all grace coming out here. And that's why you hear often in the Old Testament how people delighted in the Torah, in the law. And usually when you read law in the Old Testament, the word is Torah. The people delighted. Have you ever... Uh, you, you know, you read the Psalms. And how often the psalmist calls people to delight in the law. Psalm 119. The longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible is a, a psalm, a song celebrating Torah. The Jewish people have a fall celebration. It's at the end of the high holidays. So you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then you have um, uh, Sukkot, um, the Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. So for eight days, you know, they set up the little, you may have seen them, sometimes you'll see them in, around here in the Jewish parts of town. And so they have the Tabernacles. At the end of that, they have a celebration called Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the Torah. And it is a a party. It's the only time that they actually take the scrolls out of of where they're kept. And they carry the scrolls and they dance. And they sing. And they do cartwheels and somersaults. And literally, they, you'll see them at the end of it, they're doing, they're doing these crazy acrobatic things, trying, and I've seen old guys almost break their backs doing this. Um, and, and they, but they celebrate and they dance around the synagogue or they dance around the altar and they beat their hands on it. It's, we went to one this past fall. And I got to carry the Torah scroll at one point. But it is a celebration. Now, we don't usually think of law that way, do we? But for them, Torah is something to be celebrated because God gave Torah. God, in His grace, 
gave His Word His Torah. This is why I think it's sad in, in the Protestant tradition, we have tended to dichotomize between, especially in the Lutheran tradition, but it's, it's spread to a lot, law versus grace. Grace is all that we have in Christ. Law is sort of, and it gets applied to, that's the Old Testament. And what we miss is that in the law, in the Torah, there is grace. Now, Jesus fulfills it, and He expands it, and He makes it much more clear how that grace is present. But it's still, it's all grace. Calvin got this. John Calvin, the other, one of the other major reformers. He, he, he called for seeing the grace there. We need to get away from this idea that it's all law or it's all grace. You can have grace in law, in Torah. Okay, it's Pentecost. Why in the world am I talking about Torah, law, on Pentecost Sunday? Well, here's why. Again, for the Jewish people, the festival of Shavuot, of Pentecost, it's partly a harvest festival. But the primary focus is actually, they celebrate this as the day God gave His Torah. God gave the law. And so Pentecost is a celebration of the gift of law from God of Torah. This past Wednesday was the official Jewish Shavuot, the festival of Pentecost for, for the, in the Jewish calendar. And the tradition is on, uh, on, on Shavuot, on, on Pentecost, on the eve of Pentecost, what you do then is you gather in the synagogue and you read through, you read and study the law all night long. In fact, it's said that if you study all night until daybreak, nothing evil will befall you the year ahead. Now, I think that's a bit uh, uh, much, but nonetheless, they stay up all night. So, friends, to prepare for this sermon, I should get overtime pay for this. To prepare for this sermon, Tuesday night, I went to an all-night Torah learning session. I didn't quite go all night, okay? The, the actual learning part of it, I went to a local synagogue, sat down with rabbis and a bunch of other of the, the leaders in the, in the synagogue, and we sat around a table, we had talks, and the talks went till 2.30 a.m. I was bleary-eyed on Wednesday. I can tell you that much. But it was the time then they, they read, they talked about Torah. What does Torah mean? And, and they had other things going on too. But it was a, an evening to celebrate. And we had coffee and Coke and snacks and fruit. And we talked about Torah. That's Pentecost, friends. Now, what I find striking is that then Jesus sovereignly decided 
to send His Spirit on Pentecost. On the day when the giving of the law is celebrated, God gives us His Spirit. Remarkable, isn't it? Think about it. A couple of other texts I want to look at real quickly. Uh, One is from Isaiah. And again, this is about uh, Isaiah chapter 2. This is about law. The law, but it's anticipating now as, as the prophets looked ahead to the future because they saw so often that even though God had given His law, people were failing to keep, keep the Torah. They weren't living up to it. Living up to their side of the, of the, con- of the covenant. That promised relationship. And so in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, the prophet says it. Well, God says through the prophet, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Notice, in the future. Now, we see this prophetically looking ahead, of course, to the time of the coming of God's Word incarnate, Jesus. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now listen, and all the nations shall flow to it. Notice the witness to all the nations. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us, yarach, the Hebrew word yarach, to teach, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, walk in his paths, keep Torah. For out of Zion shall go the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's their future hope, that this this word, this Torah of God is going to go to the nations. What happened at Pentecost? Who came? The nations. And they spoke in tongues so that the nations could hear. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, friends. So that the nations could hear God's Torah. Jeremiah 31. Again, familiar words. Looking ahead. Because things weren't working out. Anticipating prophetically what's to come. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Talking about this back here at Exodus. It's not going to be exactly like that. It's going to be different. How so? Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah, okay, so Torah is still part of it. I will put my Torah within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the promise. I'm going to write Torah on their hearts. And that only happens when the Spirit of God comes and fills His people. But notice the connection between Spirit and Torah. And 
obedience. Finally, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus speaking to His disciples. And of course, these anticipation of the becoming counselor or helper. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice. Notice the commandment thing. Obedience. And then listen. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, counselor, advocate, paraclete. The reference to the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice here, Spirit, Torah, commandments. Not a dichotomy, but they come together. God gives us His Spirit. Why? So that we can be witnesses to the nations. So that we can be obedient witnesses to the nations. And this is the blessing of Spirit. The giving of the Spirit. Spirit-led obedience. Spirit-led and enabled obedience. It's the Spirit who gives us the power, who writes the Torah on our hearts. Friends, the call to holiness is not some horrible, onerous burden laid on people. The call to Torah. Rather, it is a gift. We celebrate being called into covenant and then shown how to live in the light of this new relationship. How to live right. Friends, celebrate Torah. Now, now we're going to begin the sermon. No, just kidding. Um, we could start, we don't have time, of course, to get into the whole law and the commandments. It would take a lot of other sermons. But just begin to reflect on how God delights in us delighting in Torah. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Torah. Help us to see it that way. To not look on law, Torah, as some horrible burden laid on us that has nothing really to do with our situation, but rather to see it as Your gift. Fill us with Your Spirit again, anew today, so that we can be Your obedient witnesses, a royal priesthood to the nations. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.